Hey everybody and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abajemra and I'm your host. It is uh, great to have you back with us if you've been here before and if you're new, welcome. We're glad that you checked in with us. This is a place where we share biblical truth for everyday life. Our hope is that you grow in the knowledge of God and that you continue to stand strong in a world that is shaken. And so this summer we are running a teaching series that I've put together called the Unshaken Series. It is an awesome teaching series and uh, one of the most popular teachings that I've done. It uh, focuses each week on a different Bible character, a man or woman that has stood strong in faith no matter the difficult circumstances they were in. I know that you're gonna find hope and healing with each of the weeks that will cover a different episode. And so uh, if you wanna know more about our ministry, check out livingwithpower.org. And by the way, when you land on our page, check out our speaking page. And if you are looking for a person to come and teach uh, or lead a conference at your church or uh, group gathering, then please reach out. We'd love to meet you in person. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to today's teaching in the Unshaken series. All right, we are in lesson 25, Matthew 11, of a series called Unshaken, Strong in Faith No Matter What. But today's title is Unshaken When God's Ways Offend Me. Unshaken When God's Ways Offend Me. Now, your first reaction might be, well, I can't be offended by God, right? Because he's holy and we're just human and, and it almost sounds sacrilegious. And yet so often in our Christian life, we, we end up in circumstances that make no sense to us. And when we find ourselves in these places, it's easy to sort of feel like, God, I don't understand you. And that line is often blurred into sort of this, okay, I, I don't get you and I don't like this. And, uh, and it is confusing. And, and by God's grace, the story in Matthew 11 is the story of John the Baptist a man who couldn't be more in line with God in his ways, and yet he hit this crossroad in his, in his life where he really questioned, God, are you for real? And we're gonna see this. We're gonna see it in Matthew chapter 11. I'll start reading a few verses. Then I'm gonna give you a little bit of a big picture as to the life of John the baptizer, all right? And so Matthew 11, verse one, I'm gonna read you just maybe uh, nine or 10 verses. Uh, and the word of God says this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I'm going to stop right here and remind you a little bit about the life of John the baptizer. Uh, he was the baptizer. He's the first man who baptized anybody in the, in the um, New Testament. In fact, he was the one who baptized Jesus. Uh, we'll, I'll finish the reading in a second. He was described by Jesus as being the, the greatest um, uh, in the kingdom of God. And, and that's, we're going to get to that in a second. But, but let's back up a little bit. First with the obvious question, why in the world is John in prison? And you, 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 maybe you're not familiar with the story of John, so I think it's very cool to sort of fill you on all aspects of the story, get some context. 
Um, so first of all, um, before we even get to uh, the, the why John was in prison, remember then that the last couple of weeks before today, we spent our last time in the Old Testament and we talked about the people of Israel and how they were in exile. And then remember with Nehemiah, they had gone back to Jerusalem. And then there was Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And for 400 years, there's no prophets in the land. There's, there's a famine for the word of God. They're, they're, basically, Israel had seen prophet after prophet predicting the coming of the Messiah, predicting the judgment they would endure. And for 400 years, that is a, a long time. That is twice as long as how long the United States has been in existence, almost. And that's a long time. Nothing from God, nothing. And then 400 years later, uh, the Lord shows up in uh, Luke chapter one, to an old man and his wife who were barren. And the old man was a godly man. He was of the tribe of the Levites. His name was Zechariah. He was going to serve the Lord faithfully. And on that given day, he went in to offer incense to God. And, and in Luke chapter one, Zechariah was troubled. He had a vision. He saw an angel. It says Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, here's the prophecy about John. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Now, now I, I underlined this section. In fact, I circled it in my Bible because here's the angel who's promising this couple who couldn't have kids. They were barren. And this was a miracle that they were going to now in their old age. Elizabeth is describing, we're not reading the entire chapter, but, but as you prepare for Christmas, many of you will read this. She was old and barren and, and God gives them this beautiful promise that they were going to have a baby. And the prophecy about John is that he would be great. Now that's the same John that we're catching in prison in a second. So, so he says, he will be great before the Lord and must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, before Luke chapter one, where the angel shows up and, and gives this bold proclamation about John, the baptizer, the, the, the word of God in Isaiah chapter 40 uh, makes a prophecy even 700 years earlier before his birth. God had said that prepare the way of the Lord, that he had spoken those words about the coming of, uh, the, if you look in biblical prophecy, that was the, the passage of scripture in, in Isaiah 40, verse three to five. He says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised, every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. So 700 years earlier, the Lord had predicted through Isaiah the prophet, the coming of John the Baptist. And then in Luke one, after four, 400 years of no prophets. John the Baptist uh, is, is given as a gift to his parents. And, and now he is born and he is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's like the segue between Old Testament and New Testament. So John the Baptist comes into the scene and his job is literally going to be to declare, to proclaim the way of the Lord. In fact, in John chapter one, and I know guys, I'm giving you a lot of background info. I think it's critical to understand these things as opposed to just landing in a chapter and trying to make sense of what's happening. If you get a big picture, it will help you. It will help you apply this. It will help you understand it. And so in John chapter one, it says, this is the testimony of John. Verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 
So, so this guy, after he gets of age where God launches his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness. Literally, he's preaching in the wilderness. He was known for eating locusts and honey and for wearing, uh, uh, I forget his, his clothes, the camel hair that he wore. And, and in John chapter 1, it says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites, they asked him, who are you? Uh, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So there it is, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy. And so you go, well, what, what, why was he in prison? And so, so John the Baptist, and if you look at uh, John chapter 3 and, and, or Matthew chapter 3, you see the, the story of John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness. He wore a, ga a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. This is in John chapter 3. His food was locust and honey. And he's declaring this brutal message to the people of Israel. Repent, repent, turn from your evil ways. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And people, listen, they're repenting and they're getting baptized and there's a revival brewing and Jesus hasn't even shown up yet. And in John chapter three, verse 13, Jesus, now his ministry launches. Because remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the declarer, the, the, the messenger before Christ is declaring the way of the Lord. Like any king, there's a, there's a person who comes ahead of the king who says, the king will be coming, the king will be coming. And everybody's getting ready for this. And John uh, the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. And in John chapter three, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Then verse 14 of John three, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus answers him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So indeed, John baptizes Jesus and then the spirit of God through a dove, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, comes down on Jesus. And, and that was the beginning of the launch of the ministry of Jesus. So, so John the Baptist, a key player in the kingdom of God. Okay, we, we're getting that, I think. So now here's what happens. Now Jesus' ministry starts and people who were following John now leave John and go to follow Jesus. In fact, there's a, a, a story in, 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 in where the, the, the followers of John the Baptist say to him, like, John the Baptist, man, everybody's following Jesus. Aren't you upset by this? And John the Baptist is like, no, I'm just here like to wash his feet. You know, like he's like, he's like, he must increase, I must decrease. And so John the Baptist had no question who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he declared it over and over and over again. In fact, uh, I think that is in, in John chapter three, where I was, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And again, bear with me. I know it's a lot of pages, but we need to get through this and we'll still finish on time. Don't worry. But in John chapter three, where where they come to him, the disciples, and say, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a, and a Jew over purification. They came to John. They said to John, um, uh, Rabbi, he who uh, was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ for I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. This guy is faithful. This guy is the first to recognize the Messiah other than Elizabeth, the I mean, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? I mean, she knows that she's birthing. I mean, she had the Holy Spirit, put the baby in her. So she knew that there was something special going on. So did Joseph, the dad of Jesus. But John the Baptist is the first non-parent who recognizes this is the Messiah. So he knows him, he loves him, he serves him. 
And then here's what happens to him in Mark chapter 6. It says, when Herod heard of it, so Herod heard of the story of people talking about John, where some people were saying, this is Elijah, he's a prophet, like one of the prophecies. So Herod, the king, hated God, really. It says, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I had beheaded, had, had been raised. He, he, so we get the backstory in Mark 6. So it says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Remember, he was preaching repentance of all unrighteousness. And one of those areas was moral unrighteousness. And, and so the Herod had married his brother's wife and this was against what they were supposed to do. And so, so he spoke against him and he called him to repentance. He was unafraid as prophets often did. Elijah is one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. Again, this man, John the Baptist, had the spirit of Elijah on him. So very similar ministries in many ways, calling sinners to repentance. And Herodias had a grudge against him in verse Mark 6, 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him saved. So he put him in prison for an opportune time. And so now we're back to Matthew 11. I promise you we're staying there and we're going to wrap up some application points. You see now, so now John, why is this critical? Because here's the story of John. He's, he's prophesied in the Old Testament 700 years before he's coming. Malachi, 400 years, also talks about the coming of John the Baptist and then silence for 400 years. And then John the Baptist, an answer to his parents' prayer uh, who had been barren, barren, a miracle, a promise that he would be a great man, anointed by God, who would lead people to the Messiah. Then he starts his ministry. He's walking in faith. He's obedient to God. He's serving faithfully. He's loving well, and he ends up in prison. And see it now in Matthew 11. He's in prison, and he hears reports of Jesus, who is healing, who is fixing problems, who is who's bringing joy and gladness to the hearts of the people while John the baptizer is stuck in a prison waiting his execution. And, and, and so a moment of crisis happens to John the Baptist and, and, and he sends a message to his disciples. He said, go and ask Jesus, are you really the Christ? Because in his mind, he's thinking, man, if this was the Christ, why am I in prison? Why am I here suffering and he's out doing all these things? What kind of savior does that? And rather than offering him back a message of consolation as we, you and I would want, we are human and we would think, man, Jesus lovingly should have said, be encouraged, John. It's going to be okay. I'm going to save you. You keep praying. An answer is coming. You know what? Let me grab a 10 disciples. We're going to fast and pray for you. Perhaps God might deliver you from prison. That is not the answer Jesus gives him. As a matter of fact, Jesus' response is like, go and tell him. And he literally, and maybe he shows them, but he says, go and tell them what you hear and see. So they hear of it and they see it with their eyes. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news. And he just sends him story after story of all of this awesome works that Jesus is doing for someone else. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Have you ever been offended by God's ways? Have you ever felt like, man, I've given it everything? I've given him everything. Have you ever felt like you've just jumped all in? You embraced Jesus. You were willing to be persecuted. You testified about him. You tithed regularly. You did everything that you were supposed to do. And you are sitting somewhere in a prison. And everyone around you seems to be getting loads and loads of God's favor. And you can't figure out, is he the Christ? What a natural response. What an encouraging response. How 
do we stand unshaken when God's ways offend us? Here's the first big idea. I'm going to give you just some application points here. Number one, sometimes even when you know the truth about God, his ways feel hurtful and it's confusing. I think it's important to underline that word feel. God's work and his, and his ways in our life are never meant to hurt us. They're always meant for our good. Romans 8.28 is in fact true. And yet so many of us can walk through seasons in life. Just yesterday, I believe it was, Tim Challey's a pastor from Canada who's well known and has written much about the Lord. And his son is walking faithfully in Christ. He's at a Bible Institute uh, seminary learning to be a, a pastor, I guess. I don't know what he was studying. 20, 19, 20-year-old 20 man just got engaged literally in the last couple of weeks or months. Is playing games with his friends and kills over and dies. And you're left to wonder, man, what happened? I don't know if he had an aneurysm or an arrhythmia, regardless of the cause of death that happened so suddenly. How, how do you deal with that? It feels, in the moment, it feels hurtful and it's confusing. God's ways are never meant to be hurtful. Now, now Tim Challies, to his credit, is a faithful man of God who is who has tasted and seen God's goodness, who understands that this life is passing, that our security and our anchor is in the Lord. If you go back and read his blog post, you see a man who's unshaken, undivided, fully committed to the truth of God. And so they're grieving, yet, yet in the midst of their grief, they see God's goodness. And to his credit, he's able to do that. I can guarantee you that I would struggle because I've had lesser troubles and trials in my life and I've struggled. I'm much like John the baptizer. Do you see why God's word is so encouraging? Because he gives us real live examples of people like us who felt the weight of confusing, painful circumstances. And here's a man, John the baptizer, who recognized the Messiah at the baptism. He sees Jesus coming. He says, you, uh, you want me to baptize you? No one else understood what was happening because nobody else yet recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And John the baptizer did. Say you can know God intimately and still know very little about him. Have you, have you ever seen that in your life? Man, I've been a Christian for, I was five, six when I became a Christian. I'm 48 now, you do the math. You'd think by now I'd know God. I think I do sometimes. I go, oh, I read my Bible, I teach the Bible, I, I know about him, I think I know him. And yet I wake up some days and go, man, this is a mystery. I don't even know the beginning of God. And listen, if it was differently, you'd wonder if he was God. We can't put God in a box. And so, so many of us walk with this thought, like as if we can determine what God and his ways are and what he would do and how he would do it. And so it's easy for us to feel hurt and confused because we don't understand him. And, and, and if you're going to be unshaken, the point isn't to fully understand everything. You'll never be able to understand fully this God Almighty who spoke the world and us into existence. You can learn about him, you can, and, and, and the more you learn about him, the more you realize you know nothing about him. But what you learn with time is that he's a God who is trustworthy, which is why a man like Tim Challies can vocalize his trust in the midst of his pain and say, we know that our God is good and that he is embracing our son tonight. You can love God passionately and still understand very little about his love. That was John the Baptist. The Baptist. He, he, he preached God's goodness. He preached repentance during his entire ministry. And he finds himself in a prison cell and he can't understand how Jesus is out there doing all these things and he's not saving him from his own mess. 
You can serve God faithfully and still misunderstand his ways. So sometimes, even when you know the truth about God, his ways feel hurtful and it's confusing. Underline feels hurtful because though they feel hurtful, they're never meant to harm you. Here's a second big idea. Sometimes, even when you're faithful, your story ends badly and it's hard. You say, what happened to John the Baptist after this? Well, in John chapter 3, we're kind of told, I, I read you some of that passage in John chapter, chapter uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 14, sorry, we get the second part of the story. Uh, it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. So Jesus is out doing ministry. Herod, who hates John the Baptist because he's called him out on his sin, so he sees Jesus. He says, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, they, again, you get the backstory. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. I read you that version from the other gospel, but here. And so uh, when Herod's birthday came, so he wanted, let me read you verse four, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, his wife, danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Sometimes, even when you're faithful, your story ends badly and it's hard. Now, granted, I went back in my notes and I wanted to add, looks like it ends badly. It doesn't end badly. It looks like it ends badly. It just looks humanly like it ends badly. We can look at life from the perspective of this earth and think that the story ends badly because it doesn't go according to whatever Hollywood version of a conclusion we want. Single people who hope to get married, to have kids, their time of that passes and they go, man, I, I thought it would turn differently. It looks like it ended up badly. You might be faithful in, in your giving. We've looked at circumstances. I mean, you, you name it, health crises. You, you might be doing your best in every way and still you're praying, you're asking God to heal. Still kids get cancer, people die of hunger. It still looks like it ends badly and it's hard. You say, how hard was it? Well, when Jesus heard this in Matthew 14, 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. It's hard. Pain is hard. Tragedy is hard. Having your forerunner, your cousin, John the baptizer was the cousin of Jesus. He was the forerunner in the ministry. He was a prophet. He had a physical human relationship with Jesus, but he also had a spiritual relationship with him. I mean, the layers of this, it was hard for Jesus. Jesus wasn't rejoicing in his death, even though Jesus knew that the death of John the Baptist would mean his presence with God the Father, but, but he was sad. I don't think we could feel bad about feeling sad when bad things happen. It's a hard place to live when you feel like you did your part and God doesn't seem to be doing his. It's a hard place to live where you expect God to deliver and he doesn't. Not every Lazarus wakes up from the dead. It's a hard place to live when we're hurting and everybody else seems to be thriving. But Jesus knows. Jesus sees. Don't judge God's goodness by your present circumstances. Let's go back to Matthew 11 as we come to the concluding point. Here it is. 
I didn't finish the passage in 11. I wanted to leave this bit for now. Here's what Jesus thought about John the Baptist. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, ha there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus, our Messiah. If you're a Christian today, you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe he's a son of God. You believe he's God who's come into earth in the flesh through the incarnation. He's both God, man, and he's, 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 both, he's both God and he's man. And, and, he's, and he's, he lived a perfect life and he died for our sins. Like we worship Jesus because he paid the price for our sin, right? I mean, we get that. That's who Jesus, that's the Jesus we're talking about here. That Jesus is saying about John the Baptist, the same John the Baptist whose head was just chopped off, the same John the Baptist that we just went through his life, Jesus says about him, no one greater than John the Baptist has arisen. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about himself. He's the king of kings. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who, is a, he who has ears, let him hear. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. On and on. That Jesus would consider John the Baptist the greatest in the kingdom of God brings me to the third point. So let me review the first two points. Sometimes, even when you know the truth about God, his ways feel hurtful and it's confusing. Sometimes, even when you're faithful, the story looks like it ends badly and it's hard. And sometimes, even when you think you understand your place in God's kingdom, his perspective is different than ours, and it's awesome. All right, I think this is such an important point. We have such a human way of looking at life and relationships and uh, outcomes and all of those things, success, riches, whatever it is that we think is valuable in this life. And we look at things and we determine in our life what is success and what is not. And we might look at the life of John the Baptist and say, man, that life was cut short. He was beheaded. He was young. He, did he even fulfill his calling? And, and ironically, I was with Sam. My, my nephew Sam is six and a half, six and three-fourths of, of a year now. And, and I was with him here, and I said, I'm teaching on John the Baptist. It was a couple days ago and, and before the foot incident. And I, I, was, I was just sort of wanted to feel him out. Like, I wonder what he thinks about this. And I said, it's always hard for me to introduce difficult concepts to kids. Like, you want to tell them the happy parts about Christianity, right? And I was like, dude, did you know, like, John the Baptist or... You know, he was he was beheaded like the story ends sadly and 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 i was like what do you what do you think of that and he goes uh, he goes well uh, i guess he's already fulfilled his calling he'd already fulfilled his job god didn't need him anymore he'd already done what he was supposed to do he'd already pointed towards jesus he watches a right now media cartoon that tells the story of john the baptizer although he is very godly but but that's how he knew that and, and i was like bam I go, but do you think God, do you think God might have been a little bit unfair there? Like, don't you think God's ways are offensive? And Sam says to me, no, how could it be offensive? Jesus died for us. He's given us everything we need. He's given us salvation. He's forgiven us our sins. He's given us everything in his death on the cross. And I thought, man, this kid gets it. Is it any wonder that Jesus valued children? And, and he tells us so often in his word that we are to go back and have faith like, like the faith of children because it is so simple and it believes that which is true about Jesus. 
And we get so complicated in our life and we judge God in our life by our circumstances and we think that if we end up with a beheading, then we must not be very important. And if we're not healed miraculously and if we don't have hordes of people following us and if people leave us and start following somebody else, we think that we're just like off the grid and instead God sees things differently than we do. God sees success differently than we do. God sees greatness differently than we do. See, how does God see success and how does he see how does he see greatness well i i can't help but think about philippians chapter 2 i believe it is and we're coming here to the end of this and as we grow here as we as we make our way to the end of the lessons i think the important thing here is to sort of think about this perspective how how do you see yourself in god's kingdom the disciples struggled with that they came to jesus and said man can you we want to sit at your right hand we want to be the greatest and Jesus says, you want to be the greatest, you learn to be a servant. And in and, and Philippians 2, we're given this perfect example of what greatness looks like. It says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest sign of greatness is humility. The greatest sign of greatness is the willingness to give up your personal rights. It is the ability to give, yield yourself, to give your rights to others, to, to put God first, others second. I know that sounds so Sunday school, so basic, but the greatest sign of greatness is what Jesus did on the night before his crucifixion when he knelt down and took a towel and, and cleaned his disciples' feet. This is God Almighty who created us, who came to die for us. And in a moment of perfect example of greatness, he shows us what servanthood is. The truth is that we've gone away from that. Nobody believes that anymore. We say we do, and yet our lives are a frenzy of trying to build, 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 be relevant, be influencers, build followings. All over the place we do it. We want to get accrue more likes. We want to, we want to get the, we think that by working harder, by telling more people about Jesus, but somehow we can equate this thing where now we're earning our way to God's favor, and it does not work this way. Greatest sign of greatness is the willingness to humble yourself and become obedient even to the death of yourself. And by God's grace, you and I do not have to end up on a cross, but we might have to see the death of our rights, the death of our stuff, the death of our schedules. You can think through all of the things that, that have become so important to us, the death of our social media, the death of the way that we thought church used to be run, the death of our political ideals, you name it, the list is long of things that we have thought are necessary for our greatness. When Jesus says, man, the greatest in the kingdom is this man, John, who ends up getting his head chopped off. Now, I'm not a fan of getting my head chopped off. I hope that none of us end up this way. I really pray. In fact, ironically, many people in scripture looked like it, they'd failed. Many people suffered at the end. Stephen was martyred for his faith. Paul is thought to be martyred by Nero. Peter was crucified upside down. In fact, all of the disciples but one, John, the beloved disciples, the only one who didn't get killed for his faith. Uh, the 10 and 11 later disciples all, tradition, if you read through church history, have all uh, died for the sake of the gospel. 
You look at the Old Testament, you go through Hebrews 11, Jeremiah had a difficult life, Elijah, though he didn't die at the end, I mean, he was taken up in a chariot, but not an easy life. You, you look at people over and over again who in times in their life looked like they were failing. And yet we talk about them today. And we learn from their examples because we see in a glimmer of a second this clarity of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. So that sometimes, even when you think you understand your place in God's kingdom, his perspective is different and it's awesome. So maybe John for a moment thought that he had wasted his life. Maybe John felt for a moment that, that he had gotten the short end of the stick. But Jesus didn't see it this way and it's awesome. I have no question today that in heaven, John knows the full story. And I think the last person John is thinking about is John. As his eyes are fixed, in fact, the Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how does this lesson apply to you today in a time and an era when a few people are following the real Jesus? Where few people are truly living the way of the cross? And this isn't about tweeting something brilliant about it. This isn't about impressing those people who follow you. This is about true religion. How are you playing out this sort of life in your daily life? If Jesus were to, to, to look at your life right now, what would he see? Oh yeah, you might be offended by him and you might send a message and ask. Jesus never rebuked John for asking. He sent him back a message, but he put his perspective right. Are you willing to live that way? I don't know about you, but we need men and women in 2020, moving into 2021, who will lay a stake in the ground and says, that's the life I wanna live. I might be unknown. I might live humbly, quietly. Nobody might see what I do, what I say, but the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'll do it for his sake, for his glory. So we start picking up towels, washing feet. You start seeding your rights, speaking kindly, even when you don't see life in, in your own, your, even when you don't see your own story turn out in the way that you thought it might. Listen, God sees things differently. He's still with you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. Don't lose hope. You don't have to despair. We can be unshaken. God is still in control. That sentence, God is still in control, has been seen people on Twitter just ridicule it. Like, you can't just say that. Yes, we can. God is still in control. But it's not about winning an argument with that statement. It is about just letting him prove himself to be who he is and allowing us to be vessels to, to live out that gospel of love and humility and kindness 